Hello everyone and welcome to episode 392 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers Centre where we have an awesomely supportive writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of many, many books, but her latest one is The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? I am okay. I am in the downhill slide towards the school holidays, oh, which yeah. as every mm. every close listener of our podcast will know is always a tumultuous <laughs> time for Al, <laughs> has been for many years. Of course, Book Boy is in his final year, so, mm. you know, the pressure does come off a little bit um, at the end of this year. But I've, I've got to tell you, year 12 is no fun, people. It's yeah. no fun. It wasn't fun when I did it myself mm. and it is even less fun trying to get someone else to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, wow. So bad, so bad. But so anyway, what are you going to be doing during the school holidays then? Oh, I'm actually quite excited because um, – I am going to be – so I've got – there's a few things happening. We've got some uh, – I'll be doing some uh, roadieing. There'll be some gigs. <laughs> roadieing work will be happening. There'll be some – Because Al is the mummager. I am the mummager. Oh, not for much longer though. Like I'm I'm being – you know, I'm almost out the door. The oh. only reason I get to go these days is because um, most of the gigs – that uh, book boy plays. He's actually called Joe Vissa. You can look him up <laughs> if you'd like to have a listen to his music. He's very, it's very, very good. very good. And I'm not just saying that as his mum. Mm-hmm. But uh, he plays a lot of um, licensed venues these days because, of course, you know, right. he started out as a 13-year-old and we used to do community stuff and we used to do festivals and all of those sorts of things. And that mm-hmm. was a lot easier because um, – they weren't licensed, but now everything he plays is 18 plus and nice. he has to have someone over the age of 25 with him, oh. um, a responsible adult. So that's me. I get to go and be the responsible adult. Yes. Um, so we'll be doing a bit of that. We're also going to be going, I'm really looking forward to this, we're going to go over to Canberra for a couple of days oh, and nice. go to the Masters exhibition over there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the Glassworks. Oh. Have I talk- have I talked to you about, well, you know, you're the one that put me onto this. Blown away. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Val, Blown away Val awesome. mentioned, yeah, so Val mentioned, you know, several weeks ago that she was watching Blown Away on Netflix. Yes. And if you haven't watched it, it's this funny little Canadian reality show about glass blowers. But and it's really so, good. It's really good. And so because of that, we're going to go to the, <laughs> we're gonna go to the Glassworks. What That's is it? Great. Glassworks museum or whatever but you know what they have these things where you can go to classes and you can like blow your own tumbler or make yourself a paperweight I know but not on the days that we're there unfortunately so I won't be making my own tumbler I have to go back to do that maybe you and I can go and do that together yes that'd be fun that would be fun uh so we're going to do all that and then what else are we doing well there's going to need to be some study at some point that um I have and some work on my part um so yeah so it's going to be busy and so what I'm trying to do at the moment is get myself organised enough to be able to do that because, oh, the other thing I'll be doing Mm. is the copy edit on The Wolf's Howl, which is the second Maven and Reeve mystery. Yeah, that's due to arrive on the, like, 2nd of April or something. You know, like it's perfect How long have you got? Two weeks, just over the school holidays. To do the copy edit. Oh, wow, so you'll be busy doing that as well. 
I know. And when is when is that out? When's the book release? Uh, it's coming out on the third of August. Oh, um, it's very time. exciting. Mm-hmm. And the cover is out and about, and I have uh, shared it on my blog and um, in all of the places. So that's very, very exciting. Um, so yeah, so like you know, I do have all of those things going on as well, but you would not imagine that because I am consumed by the HSC and other things. Mm. I live like yeah. I love you know tracking your progress through this podcast of all your various books and watching the books come to life. It's great. It is exciting, and mm. I think if I went back and listened to myself talk about all the list mm. stuff, I'd probably be, like, A, amazed and B, horrified. But anyway, here I am. Oh, and do you want to hear what else I did this week? What? I, I've actually got some – I've got – I've got an – I had an outing. Okay. Uh, a creative date. Oh. And I went to see Nomadland, you know, What's the movie mean? with uh, Frances McDormand is the <gasps> oh, yeah. is the lead actress in it. Um, and it's about sort of uh, – it's like the – the, well, the nomads who follow the seasonal work in in the US uh, for various reasons, many of them, you know, economic kind of refugees, um, mm-hmm. others by choice. Um, most of the – in this particular movie, the focus was on the older – the older people that do this um and it was a really really interesting film like really mm. interesting film uh really well made like extraordinary it's like a kind of documentary but with you know but posher you know like dressed up <laughs> because it's fiction but not um several mm. of the actors that are in there are actually people who this is their life this wow. is what they do um so, so you recommend yeah. it Oh, I do. I really do. Um, okay. It's kind of depressing, but not. Mm. Uh, I, I don't even. Yeah, I walked out of it. Really, it was a very thought-provoking movie. It's a great film. Really good film. Wow. So you've been out in the wild. I've been out in the wild as well. What have you been doing? <gasps> I'm so excited. Oh, <laughs> oh, I know what you've been doing. I know what you're <laughs> going to tell us all about. Brace yourselves, people, for a full-on excited valathon. Oh, my God. Well, regular listeners will know that I am obsessed, completely obsessed with the musical Hamilton, and I was fortunate enough to be the plus one, thank you, Ra, um, at the Australian premiere of Hamilton and it just got better and better and better because we got there and we were right in the middle of the front row. Oh, you were, my So God. you're practically on the stage. Practically on the stage. We could see the orchestra. They practically spat on us. It was fantastic. It was just uh, and just incredible. Ra had seen the production in London and I was um, fortunate enough to because I made the pilgrimage to New York to see the production there. And this was world-class. The Australian cast is world-class. I have nothing but amazing things to say about this production. It was just absolutely fantastic and, you know, of course, an honour to, to just be in that, be in the room where it happens. It was amazing. I'm so <laughs> excited. Haven't been so, able to. So you'd, re- so you'd recommend it then? So recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got tickets as well, but I'll be going Get with the tickets. plebs in July. Run, so. don't walk if you haven't got your tickets already because it's completely worth it. I mean, it's a work of genius. It's won so many awards, um, including the Pulitzer, um, and it's just a, a, as a written piece of work, uh, let alone a musical piece of work, it is a work of genius, so I highly recommend it. How lucky can we just can I just take a moment? How lucky are we that we can go and do this? I like, know when uh, you know so many 
so yes. much of the world and so many of our listeners are still, you know, in lockdown, yes. et cetera, that we're able to even talk about these things and go and see these things. Yes, I, we are I, so lucky. We are blessed. I, we really are. In fact, the um, producer of the original Hamilton who came out and did his 14-day quarant- hotel quarantine so that he could be at the opening production said a few very short words at the end, but they started with, you know, look around, look around, how lucky are we, you mm. know, to be alive right now. And he was saying he with so much gratitude to not only the audience but the people of Australia who exhibited self-sacrifice, who exhibited self-discipline so that we can actually experience what we're experiencing right now. Mm. And mm. it was so true. Um, mm. We're very lucky. Getting yeah. all emotional thinking about it. I know. Right? It's I yeah. No, it's – I mean, I was even thinking that myself just being, you know, at the movies on the weekend. Mm. Like it's – you know, because it's, an, it's almost a year uh, mm. now to when we were in lockdown and you kind of – and I remember what that was like and I remember what yeah. it was like for our kids and um, and I know that, like, um, you know, even as we speak, Brisbane is experiencing a three-day, yes. you know, hard lockdown again um, and to think that, you know, f- that in three days they will probably be on top of it enough mm. you know, fingers crossed, mm. that, you know, it's it's it sort of puts the – puts the halt on it again and that's you know as much as we can ask for so three days of of hopefully three days of sacrifice again will be enough to to, you know make sure that Brisbane can open up again as well so fingers crossed fingers crossed all right so I want to move on to a really great resource that I have found it's actually thanks to um, Micah on our team and she highlighted this fantastic site that I think is great for writers even if you're not a writer I think you can easily get lost down this rabbit hole um i could spend hours on it i have to actually stop myself but if you are a writer and you are writing about another part of the world or even in another city in your country i think it's really useful so it's radio.garden and we'll put the link in the show notes sounds like a bit of a weird url but radio.garden and what it is it's a map of the globe and there's all these green lights uh green dots on it and and there's countless there's hundreds probably thousands of green dots and whatever green dot you click on it will play the radio station at that green dot and mm. it's got radio stations throughout Australia throughout the world you know Indonesia America Papua New Guinea in Micronesia in the smallest little spots and it's so cool to be able to well if you're learning another language how fantastic you can hear it you know in real life um, with these announcers on the radio talking about whatever it is that they're talking about. But even if you're not hearing another language and you're just listening to it in English, you can get a real sense of what people, what the what's, you know, um, on the pulse. What, what am I trying to say? Exactly <laughs> get, sure. You can put your finger on the pulse of what's happening in that particular city by listening mm-hmm. To locals talking about their local issues, and um, and you can hear the nuances in even the the kind of dialogue when they're talking to other people, and it's such a fantastic resource. And like I said, I just click around listening to all these radio stations around the world, and I think it's absolutely fascinating I I need to tear myself away so Mm. it's absolutely worth it so you can just move I'm moving the globe around there's um oh and in Europe there's just so many it's just brilliant I'm going to stop it's not only people talking obviously you can listen to music from that from that um, spot but obviously there are um, radio stations where it's more like talk back and you can get hear more of the dialogue and conversation so that's my big tip of the week radio.garden um, I think it's awesome that's really, great really good. yes thanks Val you're welcome <laughs> anyway 
We want to uh, move on to our competition this week. This is really good. We have three copies of Dear Mum, edited by Samuel Johnson. You know, Samuel Johnson, the wonderful Australian actor who uh, burst onto the scene with Secret Life of Us, but also been has been in Rush and Underbelly, and uh, he played Molly Meldrum in Molly, you know, the TV series. Um, but this is from the team who gave you the best-selling Dear Santa Dear Dad and Heroes Next Door, and it's an honest, moving, emotionally memorable collection of letters to their mothers from some of Australia's most notable notables. There are people like Samuel Johnson, Amanda Keller, Vicar and Linda Bull, Guy Pearce, Elizabeth Tan, Rebecca Gibney, Peter Hellyer, um, Adam Spencer, and many more. So some of the letters will make you smile. Some of the letters will make you cry. It is the perfect gift for the mum in your life and a reminder to tell her how you feel before it is too late. Uh, so, yeah, it's called Dear Mum. We have three copies and you could win one of those three. Entries close on the 5th of April. So just go to writerscentercomau slash win. That's writercentres.com.au slash win. And so we will move on now, Al, to are you ready for the word of the week? (laughs) I'm always ready, Val. I'm excited that you're ready because it's Mm. a good one. Well, they're Mm. all good, you know. Of course. They're all absolute (laughs) winners, no doubt. Ambivert, A-M-B-I-vert, V-E-R-T, ambivert. Do you know what it is? Um, is it someone who's ambivalent to being a vert? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like maybe that could be me. I could be ambivalent to being a vert. <laughs> well, no, not quite. This is very relevant to writers. And ambivert, unsurprisingly, is someone who is intermediate between an introvert and an extrovert. Now, I actually think a lot of writers fall into this category because they love to be alone and in their own heads with their stories, but then you actually have to get it out there and then you have to go and do talks and go out and be with people and talk to, you know, readers. Um, and so ambivert is kind of like what I imagine quite a lot of writers are. Ambivert. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There you go. That was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Astrid Schultz says. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into. The things I found most useful about Creative Writing 1 was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same 
desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where, you know, you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive through the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic. And it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. And I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I had a cracker of a time chatting to Rebecca Lim. Now, Rebecca is an Australian writer, editor, lawyer. She has written oh, over 20 books. She's, um, oh, she's just awesome. She's great to chat to. And we talk about um, her writing process, but also about her latest book, Tiger Daughter. So let's have a chat to Rebecca Lim. Thanks for joining us today, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me on the on the podcast. Congratulations on your latest book, Tiger Daughter. For people who haven't picked it up yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, it's sort of billed as a middle grade, sort of lower YA novel, and it sort of deals with really um, big issues that adults and children are grappling with at the moment, like racism, sexism, violence against women and children. Um, and it doesn't sound like a very fun read, but um, it's essentially like a domestic quest narrative where someone who looks very much like she's been placed in a box and can't see her way out of that box um, gradually opens up her life and the life of others through empathy and kindness. So it, when you talk about those themes, it does sound like a little bit dark, but I want to assure listeners that it's very readable and it's, it's not heavy-handed in any way. It's, um, it's a great read. So I want to establish that at the start. How oh, did thank the, you. <laughs> how did the idea for this book form and what made you want to write it? Um, I've been thinking about these themes for a very long time because uh, I came to this country a long time ago as a migrant child. And so I remember very How clearly uh, probably one or two. So, you know, in very order to young. really okay. remember what it was like when I settled in Queensland and we did settle in country Queensland, which I think was a bit of a shock for my parents. Yeah. Um, you know, back then I wouldn't have remembered exactly what happened as a little kid, but I remember when we moved down to Melbourne and I would have been about three or four or five, um, you know, sort of trying to work out exactly what the heck was going on. So <laughs> everyone obviously outside the house spoke English and then everyone inside the house spoke a number of dialects. And so it was a process of navigating, you know, at the kindergarten why is the teacher bringing out apples and milk at this time of the day? Why do kids disappear forever and don't come back for the rest of the day when they wet their pants? You know, that kind of thing. And you're kind of trying to work it out in a language that isn't your first language. So I guess I've been thinking a lot about sort of the migrant experience for a few decades now. And the reason I wrote this particular book, like the origin story for this was, I went to my year seven daughter's parent-teacher interview for English and they said, 
Mrs. Liu, that's my married name, um, we've got this tailored book list for your daughter. And on the top of that book list was Playing Beatty Bow, um, mm -hmm. Picnic at Hanging Rock, and what was the other one? The Getting of Wisdom. And so those were the three books that I read at that same school when I was in that year level over 30 yeah. years before and yeah. it hadn't changed you know like in 30 30 years it had not changed and so I think I was deeply enraged and I thought if no one's written a book that sort of speaks to my daughter's lived experience and mine in all that time then it's bloody up to mum to do it mum's going to write a book for you and you can illustrate parts of it and we're going to get this published and hopefully kids just like you will be able to read it one day so that's mm -hmm. the story really Wow. Okay. So you think I'm going to, I'm going to write this book, um, to get on the lists and to ensure there's, um, a little bit more diversity in what kids read, but how did you, how about the idea of the book, the premise, like where did that come from? The premise of the book, I mean, I guess it's about, um, I mean, I think about this a lot. I think about the generation of, I guess, Asian women um, above me um, and how constrained they were. And so a lot of them, for example, didn't have networks outside the home. They weren't particularly educated because it wasn't worth educating girls, for example. And so I thought about how narrow some of their lives were. And I've seen some of this. Like I've, I've got elderly aunts, for example, whose husbands were terrible womanizers and gamblers, lost the family home you know, at the age of 65, had nowhere to live. Um, and I wanted to sort of critique that kind of experience because a lot of migrant women, I think, are going through that right now. So, for example, I play a lot of computer games and stuff. So at night, I've noticed that, you know, the COVID advertising is in English, the mental health advertising is in English. But when you look at the domestic violence advertising in those games, it's in every language under the sun. So all the domestic violence apps, and these are for children, you know, they're in Arabic, they're in Indonesian, they're in Chinese, they're in all sorts of languages because everybody, especially during COVID, um, I think they've just noticed that migrant women and children in particular, they're in really unsafe situations. Mm. So um, can we just take a step back and you've written many books, uh, over 20 books. Mm -hmm. Can you just take us back to when, almost like give us a little potted career history so that we can know how you got to become a writer and the bits that happened before? Sure. Um, I think with most people who want to become writers, like you constantly have to do it. It's like a compulsion. Um, I almost sort of call it channeling voices because you can't stop doing it. So for me, when I was a little kid, I think I was about seven, um, I, I sort of really latched on to English as something I really enjoyed early at school. And so I was starting to write stories and illustrate them when I was a seven-year-old. And obviously, you know, at that age, if you're a migrant kid, you have absolutely nowhere to go with that sort of, um, uh, I guess, you know, interest. And you also, um, in those days, you know, pre-internet, right, there was just nowhere to submit anything. Like you had no idea who to write to or how to get anything to anyone. So as a kid at school, like, you know, teachers would often say, hey, this is good enough to submit why don't you submit it to a picture book person? And so I'd do it and then you'd hear nothing. And so I think as a kid, like I started out, you know, applying for writing competitions and poetry competitions and occasionally I'd sort of, you know, come third or I'd come first or I'd get a high commendation or something and that kind of kept me going. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, being an actual adult kind of intervened and so between, I guess, year 12 and actually becoming a lawyer, which is what I was doing at the time, um, I sort of had very little ability to get a full-length novel published. So, I'd, you know, get the occasional short story out there and get something published. But it wasn't 
um, a full length thing because I just didn't have enough time and bandwidth to do it. And like a lot of writers, like I think before I turned 35, I must have submitted a manuscript to the Vogel Awards about 50,000 times and I never got anywhere. But I think there was one year where Alan and Unwin wrote back and they said, that was a terrible manuscript. It was really shocking. But the judge wanted you to know, and they never hardly ever do this, so take notice, the judge wanted you to know that you can actually write. So if you actually come back with something decent, we will read it. And so, like, I think at the time I was completely burnt out as a lawyer. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take off a year or or two just to try and get this thing off the ground. So I took time off to do some writing, and I actually did manage to get something published for children in that time. So I took a massive break from the law, had my kids, wrote some more children's books. And I think, I guess my biggest commercial success so far has been a book called Mercy, which we, which was for young adults, so 14 plus. Um, and that sort of happened in about 2010. But it sort of took, you know, decades for me to actually get to the point where I could actually make a little bit of a living from writing. So I've gone back to my day job since because I've had all these sort of, you know, like family issues and things that I I needed to deal with. Um, But I now sort of balance uh, technical writing, legal writing and creative writing as my career. And, you know, contrary to what my parents said, I actually am able to make a living from writing rather than from being a doctor or whatever they wanted me to be in the first place. Okay, so... The thing about parents, so you've just said that your parents wanted to be wanted you to be a doctor or, or, or something else and probably don't understand what you do as a writer. Now, your protagonist is a girl called Wen or Wen, and mm-hmm. um, she kind of has parents that are very strict and has have very um, high expectations of her, certain expectations of her, you know, in every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. You, what have you based that on your own upbringing, and what do your parents think now that you do make a living out of being a writer? Okay, um, uh, it's not autobiographical. It, yeah, it is a bit because I think um, as, as everyone who's read the novel so far has worked out, the father in the novel is like you know a picture of toxic masculinity, and we talk yeah. about that a lot in you know the Western media. What is toxic masculinity? Why is it a bad thing? Um, but I don't think people have really looked at it in a specific cultural context. And so for me, it was really important to talk about that kind of concept and also take apart Confucian, you know philosophy which we really haven't sort of looked at very carefully over the last 2500 years and um try to unpack you know why do men have men's jobs why do women have women's jobs why are there these set roles for people why are women treated this way and so i think um the, the novel, I guess, is really about unpacking toxic masculinity and trying to find a new path forward for Asian women or migrant women. Um, and so that it's not really my life. There's a few lived experiences in there which I can point to if you really ask me the question. But a lot of it is based on an extreme kind of, I guess, uh, picture of what a migrant, a struggling migrant family would look like. And so, you know, my dad wouldn't look at it and go, well, that's me that she's criticizing here because, you know, he's nothing like that person. And, you know, a lot of that stuff didn't happen. And we're not from mainland China, for example, I'm from Singapore. Um, but I think what I'm trying to do is just say, you know, the, the way that we sort of talk about men and women in a Chinese context, you know, that really needs to be looked at again, because we've just gone with the way we've always done things for thousands of years and that's not good enough for females I don't think Mm -hmm. um 
I'm sorry, there was a second part to your question and it's completely Which flipped my was, mind. What do your parents think of your career? Um, I think they're bemused by it. I mean, my both my parents and my parents-in-law, they're quite traditional. So I've got the traditional Singaporean family experience, con, you know, conflicting with the traditional mainland Chinese family experience. And so my in-laws have literally said, please don't give us any more of your books. We don't understand them and we don't want to read them. Um, so, you know, which is a bit disheartening, but it's like, okay, because, you know, like they'll say occasionally, oh, we noticed that you appeared on ABC News Breakfast. What was that for? And it's like, oh, you know, that book thing that you're not really interested in, it was that. Um, and then for my for my own parents, like they're just confused by the whole thing. Like I think my last um, couple of children's books before this one, like my dad was saying to me, I don't think your you know interpretation of this is correct because I don't think that's the correct Chinese word for it. And I was like, I think it is, Dad, because I researched it. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot of like I, I guess confusion because I could have gone down the traditional path like my sister, the doctor, mm -hmm. um, but I chose very deliberately not to and. I chose to actually make a living out of writing, which they cannot understand at all. I mean, you know, if they have to write a letter to the council, guess who's doing it? It's me. So, um, yeah, I just think, you know, both sets of families just think she's like some weird elephant that came out of a chicken's egg. Like, we don't even know where this comes from. So, <laughs> so that's what I'm dealing with, I think. Oh, so they think I'll probably break out of it one day. They'll think, oh, she'll wake up and she'll stop doing it one day and be sensible. But, you know, you can't. When you're a writer, you just keep doing it. So it's called Tiger Daughter. Now, obviously, I am very clear on the reference. But just in case there are some people who are not familiar what that is referencing, perhaps you can just explain that. Sure. Um, so people will probably remember that there was a massive fuss made about two or three years ago because um, a professor in America called Amy Chua, um, she wrote a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which basically kind of extolled that really extreme form of parenting that a lot of, you know, Western people will go, oh, well, you know, Chinese parents, they're so ferocious. They just make their kids stand out in the snow and, you know, practice piano for 15 hours a day just so that they can win I Steadfords and stuff. Um, and, and Amy Chua sort of basically fed right into that and said, yeah, I actually do that to my children. Um, and for me, like, I wanted to reclaim that concept of tiger parent, which has a very negative um, connotation in, in the Western press. And I wanted to talk about it from the child's perspective. So for this book, it's like, sure, it's a negative connotation. And sure, you know, everyone thinks Chinese kids go to cram school and stuff and the parents are terrible. But the kids that come out of that experience, and, you know, you and I were talking about this before we started today, about what it felt like to actually have tiger parents. I think for me, like my own philosophy is you either come out of that style of parenting as a child completely broken or completely rebellious, or you come out of it like a harder, faster, meaner, brighter version of yourself. So it can actually do terrible things to you or it can actually benefit you in, you know, ways that you didn't really realise when you were a child but realise <laughs> when you're an adult. I remember when that um, book came out, I was actually asked by an editor of a publication to write a story on what's it, what it's like to have a tiger mother and um, mm -hmm. which was a really interesting experience for me personally. But I said, you can only publish this if it's under a pseudonym. <laughs> 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 I know. 
Because <laughs> else my parents so will stop wrong. talking to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's really hard. I mean, that's the thing. Like I haven't actually told my parents actively about this book and so they weren't aware that I was writing it. And literally they saw me this week on ABC News Breakfast and said, what were you doing on the News Breakfast? And I was like, oh, it's just this kid's book I'm writing about, you know, diversity in children's literature. I was just talking about that. But, um, you know, like I, I'm not sort of actively hoping they'll read it because a lot of the stuff that I'm taking apart like it's taken for granted that that's how you do things in a Chinese family. It's like, well, of course everyone has to listen to the father. What do you mean they they, they don't listen to the father? So, um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that I probably can't unpick with them because it's so ingrained in them to just do the, ma the man-woman thing. You know, this is yeah. what men do, this is what women do. So um, this is really for my children. I mean, it's really for me to say to them, we're raising you a different way. We want you to see what, you know, we could have raised you the other way, but we're not doing it because because this is why we're giving you more freedom and that's why you're so slack now because we're um we're just saying it's up to you you know it's up to you to actually make your own life rather than us helicoptering mm. you to death what do you hope that kids you know young people who are reading this book are going to get out of it I think I'm hoping, um, especially for migrant and refugee children, because I speak to a lot of them at schools, you know, outer suburb schools where they've got, you know, basically zero resources or, they're, you know, they're reading sort of these books that have been handpicked for them by librarians who don't really look at who they are. And so, you know, you've got these Tongan or Indian or Chinese or African kids being faced by these book displays of, you know, you know that horrible headless woman kind of, um, you know, book cover. They're, they're being faced by these displays of headless, you know, Caucasian girls in ball gowns. And the teachers are going, kids, read these. They're fabulous. You know, read these dystopian things. Read these, like, you know, girls fighting for princes' hands, all this kind of stuff, right? And the kids are like, miss, you know, they're saying it to me, miss, I don't read. I don't read. I, I do slam poetry or I do beatboxing or I draw manga or I do something else because it's like I have no interest. I have zero interest in the headless white girl book. It's just, it just does nothing for them. And so, um, I think, you know, for kids like that, I want them to to understand that, you know, someone gets it. Like, I understand what their family life is like because I've seen some of that stuff firsthand. Like, I had a little cousin in Singapore and I remember her screaming at her parents and saying, you are trying to squash me to death in Chinese. And so... I'm trying to get those kids to understand that even if your home life is desperate and it feels awful and it will never change and it feels like you're stuck in this box and you're stuck on this path and you can't get off it, um, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of struggle and it's unpleasant trying to bust out of that box, but once you bust out of that box, there is hope and things will change and life will get better. And that's kind of the the story that I'm trying to set out for these kids. Like I can't speak to every migrant and refugee child because they'll have a different, you know, set of living mm. conditions from me. But it's that sort of feeling of hope. Like I want them to understand that even if feel, things feel as desperate as they do for Wen and Henry in this book, mm. um, at the end of it, you know, things are going to change and things will get better. That's awesome. Um, there's so many things that are relatable in this book. Um, it's uh, and I, but I do believe that they're relatable, whether you're migrant or refugee background or not. It's 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 um, there are so many universal themes in there. Tell me um, when you're writing, uh, and let's just take this book for an example as an example. When you're in the process of actually drafting it, you mentioned that mm -hmm. you have a day job. How do you? fit it in and what's your routine what to actually get the words um words on paper like and, and also actually just as a precursor to that 
Did you write this whole manuscript and then pitch it or did you already have a contract so you knew that, you know, okay, i got to write this by this deadline, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, okay, just dealing with my process first. Um, because I did go back to a sort of like fairly vigorous legal practice, um, what I have to do now basically is, you know, like I'm one of those people who just jots things down on, you know, American Express brochures that I sort of pick up at the post office or something and just write on the side of it and keep it for yeah. later and then expand it out when I've got time. But um, I generally write whenever my eyes are open. So um, if it's not a legal thing, you know, I'll, I'll usually just be writing stuff whenever I've got a spare moment. So for me, fear is a massive motivator. Like if I've got so many things and so many deadlines I have to meet, it really focuses me on the time where I can actually write. So if I know I've got two hours spare, I, I just go like the clappers because I've got, you know, no other time today to actually, you know, do some writing. So for me, writer's block is not a big deal because um, literally if I don't, you know, take that two hours and use it, I will be breaching some contract somewhere and I take those very seriously being a lawyer. So um, for me, yeah, I just make myself as busy as possible and then I have to meet the deadline. So that's how I've always done it like even when I wasn't working as a lawyer and I was just raising children I was literally writing pieces of you know story between feeding kids at 2am in the morning and getting up you know to make breakfast for other people who are going to work so um yeah for me it's just like just keep going and you know hope for the best um the other part of your question sorry I've just lost it again what was the second bit <laughs> it's all right so um uh did you have a contract for this or were you writing the full manuscript and then pitching it Okay. So, I mean, I think for most writers, like when I started out, um, you know, it was just pitching blindly, hoping for the best. And I just had some horror, horror, like, you know, either silence from an agent or silence from a publisher or just horrible things like, you know, I represent Tim Winton. Why would I want to talk to you? So that kind of stuff was really horrendous in the beginning, but it's kind of like a catch-22 situation. Um, people tend to publish you once you've been published. So getting that first publishing contract is, is super important because then you've got something on your CV and you can build on it. So for me, like in the beginning, it was just pitch blindly, hope for the best, get constantly crushed and rejected. Um, now that I'm a little bit more established and they're starting to call me a veteran, which makes me sound like a crone, but um, <laughs> now that I'm a veteran and I've got a few books behind me, like I, and this is what I sort of do when I'm trying to like support emerging writers as well, because I have contacts in the publishing industry now um, and I've got publishers who like to work with me. Um, I will say to them, here's the synopsis for something. Here's the mm -hmm. first few chapters. Um, do you you think this is something that has legs and so um I know it's a completely privileged position to be in but like some of them will say that's crap and I'm not even touching it and other people will say I will look at that whole thing if you write it for me so um I'm not one of those you know sensational people who can just sort of do a one pager and get a contract off the back of that but I'm sort of at that stage where I can say I have all these ideas here are the ideas do you like any of these ideas? And sometimes a publisher will say that one, I like that one. So um, it's a great position to be in and I, I completely mm. don't take it for granted. But I think with with social media now and the fact that publishers are reaching out to new voices all the time, you know, there's always those sort of weekly pitch emails that you can send mm. things to. What I would say to new writers is, that kind of stuff did not exist when I was starting. So absolutely take the bull by the horns, don't be afraid, mm. get your synopsis polished up, get your sample chapters 
polished up and send your stuff in as soon as you can because the best way to get better at this is to keep on writing and keep getting feedback. It was like me getting that letter from Alan and Unwin, you know, <laughs> this manuscript is absolutely crap, but <laughs> if you get something better, we will actually look at it. So I think I just encourage people to actually submit as much as you can and don't worry about the rejection because I just got one in December. Like I get rejections all the time and I've been published. Yeah. And so um, tell us a little bit about um, your co-founder of the Voices from the Intersection Initiative. Mm-hmm. What is that and, and what does it do? Sure. Um, So Voices, I mean, people have been grandly calling it an organisation and a group, and it's essentially me and a First Nations author, Amberlyn Kwaimulina. So she's an academic as well as um, a children's author and YA author um, who lives in Western Australia. And so we run this um, so-called initiative from our studies. So she's in Fremantle and I'm in Melbourne. Um, And essentially what we do is because we have, you know, I guess we're old and grizzled now, but we've been doing this for a while, we try and lean on our public contacts um, at the big publishing houses and the small ones um, to try and put together opportunities for emerging own voices writers. And when we say own voices, we mean people who aren't, you know, often published. So people who are marginalised, people who occupy intersections. So, you know, people might be queer and disabled or, um, you know, queer in First Nations, voices that we don't, yet, you know, hear um, that often in published literature. So we've done a pitch day, which we ran with the help of the State Library, the um, Centre for Youth Literature, which unfortunately has met its demise, I think. Um, We did a pitch day for like about almost 40 emerging authors. And so, you know, people were coming with their guide dogs, they were coming in wheelchairs. Mm. I mean, people who didn't have a chance to actually speak to publishers in real life could actually sit down at a table with them and meet them face to face. And like the publishers who came, they were lovely, mostly women, really approachable. And a lot of the people there, like they haven't come away with a, you know, $1 million writing contract, but they've come away with email addresses and contacts Mm. and they've been Mm. in touch since. So that's a really valuable thing because often publishing looks quite faceless. You don't know who you're dealing with. You just you know, get rejected from the slush pile and you have no idea who read it. But with that day, at least a lot of them actually got to meet publishers and see that they weren't ferocious people and, you know, they were just human beings like the rest of us. Um, And since then, I think we put together an anthology, Amblin and I, which we edited with Fremantle Press called Meet Me at the Intersection. So a few of the voices from that day actually had their first, you know, short form piece of fiction published. We also had a few um, established authors in there like Alice Pung um, and who was another one, Jared Thomas, I think. So people like that, we had a good mix of, um, you know, mostly emerging but some published authors and just had some really interesting intersectional voices in there. and then since then, I think we're trying, but COVID kind of killed it along the way. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to just run a mentorship program through ANU, hopefully this year or next year, where we give, I think, up to four people the opportunity to have their um, manuscripts sort of like uh, mentored by me and Amblin in the first instance. And then if ANU is interested, they'll step in and hopefully publish it. So that's mm-hmm. something that we're going to do, but we just haven't sort of got to act together for this year yet. Mm-mm-mm. Now, <clears throat> I just want to go back to actual writing because one of the things that you said you kind of basically said because you have a full-time job and it's quite busy and demanding you write in those spare moments in any spare moment that you can um is it literally any spare moment you can like on the bus on the way home or do do you carve out any sort of set time like maybe Sunday afternoon or something like that so you have some certainty that a little block of time might be um, dedicated to that or literally is it 
in your spare moments? It literally is actually in my spare moments, really? unfortunately. Like I'm supposed to um, I'm supposed to have, you know, some time on Fridays to do some writing, but it sort of often doesn't turn out that way. And um, I mean, for me, like this is a sort of horrible mental picture, but like, for example, when I'm waiting for the kids at school sometimes, because I, right. I sort of try to pick them up as much as possible myself, I'll take a 20 pack of toilet paper and put my laptop on it in the car park <laughs> and just work there. So Hang on, in- hang on. What's the 20 pack of toilet paper? Because it's like a it's like a stable table, right? So I just kind of get the twenty pack of toilet paper, and I'm the crazy mother in the car park working off the toilet paper. Um, so I literally just write anywhere, and you know, like if I have a spare moment, we'll sit down at my laptop and and start doing stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of like moving parts. You know, I might be copywriting a sustainability report, I might be doing a children's book, I might be working on a sort of fantasy novel, but it's all sort of whatever, whatever sort of like taking hold at that particular moment so yeah pretty much working when my eyes are open I'm just working on something and that's probably the same case with you and every other writer as well (laughs) so this is middle grade what do you do and the protagonists are around that age what do you do to get into the headspace of a person of that age um, I'm lucky because I have children of that age. And so um, for this particular novel, like I wrote it because I was frustrated for my older daughter, but I also knew that my younger daughter was coming up through school and she would also want to see stories about herself and her friends. So it was easy because I'm constantly immersed in their TikTokery and all that kind of stuff. Like hmm. all the time, they're, they're just saying new stuff all the time or making me listen to stuff. I'm listening to things and going, why is this exciting? Like, why are you so oh, interested in this family, right? But the language, you know, so I'm really, really big on eavesdropping and, and like listening to the way that people speak and so you know I've actually eavesdropped stuff off the train station platform and put it into my novels because it's just so Mm -hmm. fantastic um so I think for me yeah listening to the language is really important and I listen to a lot of rap music would you believe so um a lot of I don't know I just love it um like some of the I know why um but some of the um and you know like yeah I mean some of the stuff that they say is just remarkable you know stuff is being like new words are being created all the time and so um yeah I'll get a lot of you know youth energy I suppose because I am sort of a grizzly older Asian lady like I'll get a lot of energy out of out of the language that's coming out so um yeah for me it's like immersing yourself in like the visual it the very visual culture that we live in nowadays and and just having young people all around me and I do speak to students quite often um and I'm lucky to have like a really strong network and I would recommend this for any starting writer I've got a really strong network of friends who who write for children or or young adults anyway and so you know as a bunch of like 40 something women you don't want to be channeling a 40 something year old voice when you're writing for younger people so Mm. it's really good to listen to their feedback and listen to things that people have said to them about their books and just sort of work out you know what you shouldn't be doing as well as what you should be doing yes um, you say that in your day job you do, you know, technical writing and other kinds of writing. Yep. Um, like you might be writing a sustainability report or whatever. I was talking to a copywriter yesterday who said that because she's writing copywriting all day and she's working on a novel, the mm-hmm. last thing she can do when she gets home is switch it to write a novel. What's obviously that doesn't happen to you. How do you find it so easy to you obviously find it easy to switch? What do you do to do that? So what advice might you give to that lady, for example? 
Right. Um, well, for, for me, I mean, I kind of, and I was doing this yesterday, I was having this, this massive binge on 90s music and like, you know, most of the people listening to this probably weren't even born then. But, um, you know, like for me, it's really important before I'm writing anything fictional, for example, probably doesn't work as well for nonfiction, but for fiction, um, often for a particular work, I will have a playlist. And so for me, as soon as I hear oh. a particular song, I will drop into the universe of that story and I'll be in that headspace. And so... For me, it's really easy to say, you know, I'm I'm going to drop off that ASX, you know, 20 listed company thing that I was doing now <laughs> and just listen to this song and just wash all that away and just think about what it feels like to be in that particular world. So for me, music is a really big one and also just a visual mood board. Like a lot of writers will have a physical mood board, I think. But for me, I often, before I start a book or I'm in the middle of a book, I'll have a lot of like, I'll keep an electronic file of like mm. pictures. And so, you know, what does the building look like that they're running to? What does the jar look like that she's holding? Like I'll have pictures mm. of what I think I want to see. And then when you have to write it, when it comes time to actually describing that jar, for example, it's right there. You can see mm. it. So I'll put it up on the screen and then I'll start writing about it. The jar looked like this, the light was falling on it this way. It was this shape. It felt like this when she held it. So, um, for me, I think a lot of it's it's a bit of a cheat, you know, like I've got the music, I've got the pictures and ready to go. Like you just kind of you're describing stuff that you can already see and hear. So it's it's mm. much easier to get into that mood. What great triggers. That's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> all right. So what's uh, what was the hardest thing about writing this book? The hardest thing. I mean, I think with a lot of my books and I mean, it's it's kind of like built for a, a layered audience. Like I'm trying to reach adults and librarians and teachers as well as mm. children at the same time. And so I do that often in a lot of my books. Like I'll have sort of this meta theme that, you know, the child reader won't necessarily see, but the adult reader will see. Um, so for this one, I really was taking a part. I mean, I'm probably one of the very few people in the entire universe who's actually read the Analects of Confucius and the Tao to Qing by Lao Tzu all the way through. And so I've actually read them back and forth now. So if anyone asks me about, you know, what did Confucius think about women, I can spit out the three examples of women that are actually in the whole thing. Um, but for this, like I actually was trying to critique you know, Confucian thought, because a lot of it still underpins, you know, Chinese families, Asian families, all the values that we have. And there's not a lot of room in there or not a lot of growth in there for female, you know, children and, you know, women in general. Um, so with that book, the hardest thing for me was to take examples out of the Analects and actually use them as, I guess, you know, like a section opener for each of the parts and then illustrate in the actual part of the story that I was writing, why that part of the Analex was really, really stuffed or, you know, needed to be looked at more closely. So I guess for me, there was that whole, I'm kind of doing a critical essay here, but I'm also trying to tell an engaging story for children. So that, yes. that was a difficult project for this, I think. And what was the most rewarding thing apart from finishing it? Um, I think the most rewarding thing, and this sounds crazy, but um, there was a point, there's always a point, like when I read this 
book back to myself, there's always mm. a point that makes me tear up. And mm. so I think if it makes me tear up, mm. then hopefully I'm doing the job for everybody else who's reading it because, and I've, I've had feedback since, like it got published this week, but a few people have said to me, like, I think there was one review last night. One woman said she had a waterfall sitting behind mm. her eyes that was just mm. threatening to come out every time she read it. So um, I think for me, the really satisfying thing is that the emotions and the empathy and the kindness and that kind of trajectory of hope, like mm. people have actually seen it and they've really responded to that. Mm. What's next for you? What are you working on now while you are, you know, with your 20 pack of toilet paper? <laughs> um, like like any writer, I think, um, you know, there are some sort of things that you're working on that are so fragile and nascent that if you talk about them, they'll probably just wither under the sun and blow away and die as ashes. Um, so I kind of have this really nascent crime thing, which I have to say very sadly, um, and I'm, I'm talking to you, Curtis Brown, Australia. Um, I just, like anyone else, um, submitted to Curtis Brown to try and get an agent because I don't have an agent. I've never had one. Um, and they said, they sent me the form letter. So I got the form, uh, you know, sorry, you're not for us. And I thought, oh, that's really sad. Um, so there's that crime thing, which Curtis Brown hates, which I'm sort of working on. And then there's a fantasy thing that I'm working on at the same time. So um, one or the other may come to the surface, but given how crushed I was by Curtis Brown rejecting me, I might just leave that one for a while and just work on the fantasy one, I think. Are they for uh, young people or adults? Uh, they're actually, well, that's that's why it's so crushing. I think the Curtis Brown one was like, you know, my, my re-entry into the adult market, which, you know, has been put aside for like 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. So they, obviously I don't write very well for adults. Um, and the other one is probably more of a YA slash adult crossover thing. So they're kind of towards the upper range. I, I think I'll be leaving middle grade for a little while because writing this one was actually quite emotional. So I think I mm -hmm. might just leave middle grade for a little while and let this one percolate through and see how it goes. And um, finally, what's your top three tips for aspiring writers who, you know, hope to be in a position where you are one day? Oh, they wouldn't want to be in my position. I'm sure they'll be in a better position. But um, top <laughs> top three tips would be um, literally just keep writing. It's not a glamorous job. You have to really put aside time to do it and you have to be able to take criticism. So as much as possible, get a network that you can actually run your work past and, you know, share ideas with, um, you know, just say, does this read beyond the pale or do you think I'm onto something? So I would mm -hmm. say get a network. Number two, work really hard. Um, mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to edit, like chop, 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 because, you know, the, I think by the time you've honed it, it will be so much better than when you started. And the third tip would be, I guess, really find um, – you know, find a niche or find a market that really suits your voice. Because a lot of people set out to say, you know, I'm going to be the next James Patterson, I'm going to be mm. the next Stephen King. And they may not necessarily be suited to that market. You know, they may be the, the best historical fiction author that the world will ever see, but they've just decided to be, you know, a big crime writer or a big spy writer and they sort of haven't really thought about doing anything else, I think you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself too early and try and figure out what really you enjoy reading and writing and what market your voice best suits, I think. Brilliant. Um, and on that note, congratulations on Tiger Daughter uh, and thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Val. It's been a pleasure. There we go, Rebecca Lim. Now I have gifted this book to quite a few people. I think it's um I think it's awesome. So uh, I have no doubt it's going to go extremely well. Well, I think so too. Like it's I 
I've actually got a copy of it on my shelf that I have not yet read um, just because I have so many. Um, but You'll it is it. one of those books that I have seen a lot of chatter about, yes. like in the sort of like children's publishing world, mm. and it's been really, really well received. So I'm hoping it does great things for her. Absolutely. All right. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. Um, well, gosh, we've got Easter coming up. We do. Yes. Are you, are you just going to be editing? You copy editing? Well, I'll be doing, I'll be roadieing yes, and I'll and be, um, what else am I going to be doing? Uh, I'll be eating Easter eggs because that's what I do. Oh, yeah. um, I bought my cross buns today. I had the mm. funniest conversation with one of my children. I won't say which one because it was hilarious <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't want to out them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the conversation started with, this is this is this week, so we're talking about March, you know, yeah. April. Yeah. Um, the conversation went, is Santa coming this year? And uh-huh. I'd just like to remind you all that my children are 17 and 14. <laughs> is Santa coming this year? And I was like, dude, I haven't even, like, seriously, it's March. Yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. What about Christmas? Yeah, well, you'll have to think about that soon. Um, but then we moved on to the real reason the conversation began, uh-huh. which was the Easter bunny is actually coming, right? And I'm like, oh. I... We are well, and it's just, and then and and then the conversation went because you know the thing with Santa is that there's backup presents, hmm? but if the Easter Bunny doesn't come, oh, there's going to be no Easter eggs. Oh, <laughs> just like, okay. So I just want parents of young children to know <laughs> that even even at the point that you have been long, well and truly like that, you know, just in case people listen to this in the car, that maybe the status of the Easter Bunny and Santa, et cetera, has changed, they're still going to be expected. Yes, yes, They're still absolutely. expected to oh. turn up. Like what is that? <laughs> year in, year out. Well, because, like, you know. You're like stuck forevermore yes. having, having these people visit your house. Well, yes, because they are real, you know, in case there's any. No, but that's what I mean. Like, you know, just forever more. They're Mm. just going to keep turning up. Well, Santa did turn up because uh, this is a real conversation in my household where there are no children. (laughs) 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 And I said, I'll just out him to my partner. "Uh, Santa's on the roof next door. And he just went, I know, he's been there for hours. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. As if that was the most normal thing in the world. Because he really was on the roof next door. I'm not even joking. Santa. Santa was on the roof. Yeah. Not kidding. He was fixing the solar panels, but he was <laughs> fully dressed as Santa. <laughs> Santa was on the roof fixing the solar panels. <laughs> This is such an Australian conversation, really, isn't it? <laughs> was this anyway. in March? Or was no, this no, it in, was at Christmas. At Christmas time. Oh, just checking because, yes. you know, like in March it would have been even stranger. Although there are people that put those Santa decorations up and just leave them there all year round. So oh, you get to see Santa, you know, every day of your life yes. on top of the solar panels. No, that's just a bit silly. 
anyway. <laughs> oh, we've lost it. Okay, we've it's lost time it. To, All right. It's time to finish. It's over. Um, just make sure, everyone, that if you want to join our Facebook listener community, please just search on Facebook for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Love to have you in there. It's one of the best groups I'm in. I love it so much. Um, please so, answer both the questions because yes, if you don't well. answer both the questions, you will, you're, you're just barred. It's like, it's like the bouncer <laughs> policy. You will never get beyond the velvet rope if you do not answer both the questions yes when you request to join uh so yeah make sure you join us in there we'd love to have you in there now where do we find you online al you'll find me at alisontate.com a-l-l-i-s-o-n-t-a-i-t.com you'll find me on twitter at at al tate a-l-t-a-i-t and you'll find me on facebook and instagram at alison tate writer and you valerie where do we find you You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.